This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. What's happening, everybody? This is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. Today is part two of my conversation with Don West and Michael Pinella about a self-defense case that the three of us worked on together and uh, I've been excited to present this series of podcasts to you because on this show we often talk about high-profile cases that we weren't a part of, that we were just spectators or read about them in the press. And part of that is because in most cases uh, there's confidentiality in the cases that we work on ourselves and that there is uh, an ethical obligation to the client to preserve their privacy in this particular case, the John DeRossett case, our client has given his blessing for us to just explore all the intricacies of the case uh, because he wanted uh, other armed defenders and concealed carriers to have the benefit of the lessons that he learned in this case. So if you haven't listened to part one of the podcast, I'm going to really encourage you to stop right now, go back and listen to part one of the John DeRossett case. It's going to set the stage for what we talk about today, and then come on back. And in case you don't want to do that, uh, or you've already listened to it, I'm going to give you a quick recap of the top points here. John DeRossett was a man who had moved to Florida in his retirement. He happened to take in a wayward niece who had a drug problem, after his family asked him to do so. He did so reluctantly. She had resorted to prostitution to subsidize her opioid addiction, and the local sheriff's department was conducting a sting operation to catch prostitutes. They uh, violated their own department policies, ended up coming to the house in plainclothes officers, undercover officers, to an effect an arrest. They weren't well trained. The officer that tried to, to arrest her uh, messed some things up. She thought she was being kidnapped by a random John on the internet to be forced into the sex trade. She starts screaming for her uncle to help. He responds by grabbing his clock, coming out. He saw her wrestling with two men in the darkened yard uh, at nighttime. He couldn't tell that they were police. They weren't wearing their uniforms. He fired a warning shot into the air. There are other deputies uh, responding to this in the darkness. They were also uh, not wearing uniforms. They fired back. There was a gunfight. 40 rounds or more were fired. John was hit twice, but not critically. But he did critically injure one of the deputies, the guy nearly died. And in the end, they charged John DeRossett with three counts of attempted murder on law enforcement officers. My friend, a great lawyer named Michael Pinella, was a public defender at the time, and uh, through a strange uh, turn of events that you'll hear about shortly, he ended up getting the John DeRossett case, and he... Solicited the help of Don West, who he'd worked with on the George Zimmerman case, 
and he approached me to help him with certain aspects of the case. Uh, all three of us had worked together on the Zimmerman case once upon a time. We were all happy to help him. Mike's a great lawyer, uh, and in these three podcasts, we've been telling the, the inside story of the legal defense of John DeRosset. This episode is going to be one of those episodes that I often refer to as our law school podcast because we're going to talk a lot about the legal nuances that were required just to get into a posture where we could mount a strong legal defense for John DeRosset. These types of conversations that are super interesting to me and I think to other lawyers, but I worry sometimes that uh, folks who are not initiated with the law might find these a little bit dense. But in the end, here's why I think they're important. Because I think the average citizen, the average armed defender, the average concealed carrier doesn't have a good grasp on how complicated and difficult and, and what a crooked road to justice that there is once someone's entered into the criminal defense or the criminal justice system as a defendant. And so you're going to have the benefit of a very candid inside look at a criminal defense that, frankly, because of the ethical considerations, uh, you don't often get a chance to hear. Um, in the course of today's conversation, we're going to explore a little bit about the intricacies of dealing with bond in the wake of a charge like homicide or attempted murder. And we're going to look at the consequences that facing a prosecution can have in your life, including what it does to your family and your potential to earn and income. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about stand your ground laws and how that differs from a broader uh, legal phenomenon that's come out of stand your ground laws, which is the idea of self-defense immunity. Uh, we'll get into that. Uh, but we're going to start with Mike Pinella explaining to you how he ended up working on the John DeRosa case in the first place. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, thanks for being patient with us. I hope you get something out of this quote-unquote law school episode of In Self-Defense. Here's my conversation with Don West and Michael Pinella about the legal defense of John DeRossi. The reason that the public defenders asserted a conflict on that case in the first place was because I was assigned to represent Mary in her misdemeanor cases where she was charged with solicitation in this case and also uh, resisting. And that was a big deal because I cared a lot about her case and I was really interested in what was going on with John because I thought, I, even as a PD, before I you know really knew everything that was going on with this case, I was thinking that John was getting screwed. And uh, I was basically uh, under... I, there, there wasn't much that I could do uh, to resolve it because the uh, the public defender's office said, "Look, this is the plea that we're going to take, and we're going to just resolve this this misdemeanor for Mary and and go that way." And I I was concerned about that. She was concerned about her uncle, and I thought that it might have implications for her uncle's case. But she was my client, and we did the best we could for her. They gave me that case because I had met Don West. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the the public defender 
Yeah, assign me, because even the misdemeanor was high profile at the time, and because I had some some experience just kind of like watching uh, uh, Don and uh, and Mark in, in that Zimmerman case that I had just come out of. This is my first lawyer job was as a public defender in misdemeanor. But they um, felt that you'd know they, how to handle it. You know, about all the misdemeanor prosecutors would probably should go to me. So I ended up getting that case and resolving it, and uh, then... What what happened was the public the attorney that was representing John couldn't do it anymore be, for his own reasons. It went to the public defender's office and they asserted a conflict because the public defenders had represented Mary, but I was the one I was the public defender that represented Mary. And before you knew it, the family had called me because of that and said we want you to to represent John, but I couldn't because the PD's office said uh, we're not touching this thing with a ten foot pole. You know because again it was very political. So I called Don and I said hey. Um, this is a case I care a lot about. I think this guy's getting screwed. Here are the facts. Don seemed to care a lot about it too. I think Don knew better than I did what was going to be involved if I were to leave the public defender's office. The only way I could do it was to leave and jump off a cliff and basically take a non-paying case and open a practice. Surrender your health insurance benefits and, and, and you're, uh, at that point, uh, father of one or two young children. About to be a second and and we needed the PD health insurance to have that kid. We had just had him. Um, well, actually, we didn't yet. <laughs> so so yeah, that yeah. became a thing where it was like, well, what is, what's the timing of it? But Don really talked through it with me. I remember I was living in a double-wide trailer in Brevard County because I was a PD out there, and that's where we were living. And um, gosh, Don, what was it? We probably ta- You probably talked to me for three hours that night. Yeah, could have been. Could have been. And just all of the all of the things I wouldn't have thought to think about, you know, the case, great, you know, that's one thing. But what about on a personal level, and what's it going to do? What about the family? What about what this is going to look like? Uh, but you didn't discourage me from taking it. Um, if I was, you know, but you, you, you know, if I was really ready and, and had thought about it. Uh, but then I said, well, great, appreciate that. How about you? <laughs> yeah, that's that's wonderful, but would you be willing to do it with me? Because I'll tell you, I don't want to do it by myself, and I don't think that I should do it by myself. That was truly how I felt, and I think I was right. And then you, you were sort of wanting to move into a different area of your career at the time, right? Yeah, I wanted to wind things down a little bit, be very selective on taking cases, uh, with an eye towards being both selective in the kinds of cases I took and the number of cases, I wanted to move toward retirement. You know, I'm into my 40-plus year mm. of practicing law, and um, the exhilaration of working on a case like Zimmerman is still inside, and yet the challenges were also there, too. And I, 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 have, and I firmly believe that you would have to deal with all of that and I would have to relive it too, which is both the exhilaration, but also just the overwhelming weight of it all, knowing that you have someone that, whose life you are responsible for because they are completely helpless in the system. They can't make any decisions about court. They can't make any, they can't control the evidence. They can't make those decisions about even, frankly, what's in their best interest along the way. They, they are really the vehicle by which we ply our trade. Some cases are better than others. On its face, this seemed like all of the things that you said, Sean. It was an exciting case. It, it had 
it, some appearances of some corruption, and I don't mean that, and I don't think you did either, that people were being paid off, or that there was something underworld about it. It but was just political pressure to get yeah, a conviction they had, on this. They had their stake in it. They didn't want to be embarrassed. They didn't want to lose their standing. They wanted to be successful the next time they ran for office. Uh, the prosecutors involved didn't want to be embarrassed. They perhaps someday would seek higher office. That's part of that political process. Everybody involved at the highest end of this case were elected. And that had sort of the deja vu all over again, you know, written on it like uh, Zimmerman did. So I was very cautious uh, about you jumping in it, being basically right out of the box. I knew full well you were capable of it. That was never a question that you could handle it, that you had the skills. And I think to large part because of what you went through as part of the Zimmerman team exposed you to things you could practice 40 years for and never see. Mm. So you had all of that, including the media attention. The appellate experience. The appellate experience. Mike, you, I mean, you were solely responsible for a lot of the appellate stuff. We had writs and all sorts of things in the Zimmerman case that you handled. I mean, uh, thankfully, you did, and you did a great job. We were successful, and it had a big impact on the, the direction of the case. I was pretty hesitant personally for you in that I knew what a strain it would be, not just in time, but also it would have a financial strain. You wouldn't be available to earn money doing other stuff. It would mean you had to go to jail, the jail on nights and weekends. You had to subsidize your practice by doing other things because this client was not going to be able to pay the freight, at least not enough to justify the amount of time that we all knew would be involved. Well, I think there's this big hole in my um, mind, maybe, that allows me to take these things on <laughs> with no realistic expectation of getting paid. Maybe it's the excitement of it and knowing there's not that many good self-defense cases and there's not that many aggrieved people that really need the help that only a few people can provide. Mm, I, know, I know you've seen the documentary, The Wrecking Crew. Yes. The Wrecking Crew was the uh, group of session musicians in L.A. during the 60s that were played on Pet Sounds and a whole bunch of other classic recordings that everybody knows, right? And there was a guitarist in that group. I think his, his last name was Tadaro. It may have been Tommy Tadaro or Johnny Tadaro. He said there's four reasons to take a gig. You do it for the money, you do it for the experience, you do it for the people, or you do it for the fun, right? This case had three out of four of those. <laughs> there's not really any money. But we love the people. Yep. The experience is amazing because you can't write this stuff. And and, um, and, and if, the... if lawyers can have fun, this is how we do it. Well, I mean, <laughs> these kinds well, of well, fun is, fun is Fun is having um, a, a case you really believe in that, that you can justify pouring your whole heart into to defend to the bitter end. Using the skills that you hope you have when you need them to do battle because there is no question about it, no better metaphor probably, it is a battle of sorts, not the kind you have in other places um, when you knock down people physically, but we knock each other down emotionally, we try to knock each other down through legal argument and persuasion, and there is no question that it is the kind of battle that, um, yeah. and probably no better battle to have than in a criminal courtroom. Well, so with you saying, 
for for whatever your reasons were, and 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 it was quite for me quite an honor for you to say, you know what, if you do decide to do this, I yeah, I'll do it with you. I especially knowing now what I didn't know then that you really knew that it was going to be taxing on you too, and and it was and it was going to be just quite quite a thing. You probably also had anticipated that it was not going to be over in a year. <laughs> and and that's not something I think I understood. Uh-huh. Um, you know, looking back now, I really I, I can't believe you did it with me. But I'm so thankful you did. And yeah, so we, Sean, we made the choice. I mean, I jumped off. I went to the my boss. By the way, the public defender's office was too, even to this day my favorite job I've ever had. Even even stacked up to my current practice situation. I mean, I loved it. I've considered at some point in my life maybe even going back. Um, but I went to my boss and I said, here's what's up. They want me to do that case that we just conflicted off of. And, uh, basically said, Godspeed. And we left on good terms and that was, and we were off to the races and we met with John. He had, he had figured out a way to bond out by the way, but he was on a monthly payment plan because he couldn't afford even the 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I filed a notice of appearance and Don, you didn't until it came time for the actual uh, evidentiary hearing. Let's, let's take a second, too, because um, in here, there's sometimes I, I call these episodes our law school episodes, right? They, they can be, a lot of our listeners are listening for tactical advice, you know, and they're looking for uh, how what clues on how to interact when they find themselves in a life or death situation, mm-hmm. and when we get bogged down into the the legal minutia, I, I think it can be overwhelming. But but I would like to take time every once in a while to do that because the the days and a couple weeks after a self defense shooting, when there are charges being considered, there's these legal steps that that happen that are completely unknown and mystifying to people who have never been that worked at the PD's office, right? So, so just just on this point too, I want to talk about bond because uh, if if there are charges filed and you're not somehow exonerated through the, the right away, you're you're looking at a homicide charge of some sort, probably murder. Yeah. Well, and and there's going to be a huge bond set for that. And the way bond works is there's a, there's a bondsman who's uh, willing to stake you, which means that if you flee the jurisdiction and run, then he has to pay the court your entire bond. And, and what he does is he'll take 10% of that in cash Right, while well, you put up the other ninety percent in collateral, if you can, uh, or you're just going to rot in jail while you wait for trial, right, Don? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's typically the structure of a surety bond. The bond ultimately is set by the judge, and in a murder case, or even a case as serious as this one, where no one actually died, but it involves attempted murder on three law enforcement yeah, officers. Um, there would be a vehicle by which the prosecutor could attempt to have him hold held without bond in jail. It would not have been inconceivable. Uh, in any event, a bond was set. It was several hundred thousand dollars. It over was four hundred and fifty because yeah. it was one hundred and fifty thousand per count. Yeah. So uh, you've got four hundred fifty thousand dollars to deal with. If you had four hundred fifty thousand, you could write the check and you could get out of jail, forfeiting it if you don't comply with the orders of the court. To use a bondsman, as you said, Sean, you typically pay a fee of 10% up front, typically, uh, 
some sort of property or assets or pledges by others for that collateral. And once that's done, you can get out of jail subject to bail being revoked. If you mess up, you can go back to jail and lose any money that you paid. And if you fail by fleeing or otherwise not appearing as required, the bail can be forfeited and the bail bondsman would have to pay it. Of course, they want to be pretty careful who they bond out because they've got their business on the line too. And, right. Uh, and the fact that this bondsman was willing to let Duraza pay on payments meant that he was pretty confident that he wasn't a flight risk and that... Well, yeah, he didn't. like I said, he didn't have any criminal history and there were some families that put up some properties. Of course, at this point, the families felt pretty bad, right? <laughs> but yeah, they basically know. wrote the script for it in many yeah, ways yeah, for what led up to especially it. because John was trying to do basically a good thing right, um, right. But, but here's another example of how your actions as a defender affects your entire family if, if you go to your whole network to say I need enough money and I need enough collateral to get out of jail you've got, you've got people who are, are potentially going to mortgage their house or, or put their house up against the the bond to guarantee it yeah that's exactly right you may have to collect all the money and all the property from all of the friends and family you can acquire or accumulate or somehow call in and it still may not be enough but if it is all of that's on the line too so they not only have to be willing to do it and have the ability to do it they have to be willing to assume the risk and trust you that much Um, i'll tell you read a couple of newspaper articles on this case you're not likely to have a lot of faith in John and his defense. So that was, a, that was a, a tough call. Now, this is sort of inside baseball for not just the criminal justice system, because that's what we're talking about is the after effect, you know, right. the, the second fight, the fight for your life. But it's also trial strategy uh, inside the lawyers' minds about how this stuff plays out. But as you point out, Sean, very valuable lessons to know what's ahead of you. If you ever wind up in this situation, whether you were completely justified or not, once you're arrested, once you're charged, all of this stuff happens to you without regard for whether you are actually not guilty or not. Mm-hmm. So it's a daunting, frightening, completely intimidating process. And here he didn't have the $45,000. That was the bottom line. So he was on payments. I think he had to pay two or 3000 a month toward that 45000 which was the 10% of the bond itself, and that was right. with houses as collateral. Which is tough to do. It's tough to be able to pay that and live when your employer now knows that you're being charged with attempted murder on law enforcement officers. He lost his job. Well, he immediately lost his job yeah. and then couldn't get another one. He tried. Uh, even just working at a gas station or something, they wouldn't hire him. Especially in that county, because, again, everyone knew about it. And the charges were, you know, so serious. But on top of that, they they just didn't want to employ him. You know, John tells stories that he would be at like a a grocery store and people would give him the side eye. Or there'd be a law enforcement officer there that would, um, you know, either either say a negative comment to him or or treat him very curtly. And John would just be like walking, you know. So it it was a rough go. You know, let me take a minute and offer just a brief commercial here, for because, since we're talking about bond, because John's bond was four hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. CCW Safe members have their bail bond covered up to a million dollars. 
which means that the benefits of the, the program, the terms of the program, covers that bail bondsman fee in most plans, maybe all of them at this point, up to a million dollars, which means it's CCW Safe that pays the bail bond fee of 50000 on a half a million bond or 100000 on a million dollar bond. So the member doesn't have to essentially liquidate all of their assets and then liquidate all the assets of their family and friends in order right. to get that first step, which is to get out of jail, to be able to go back to work, to be able to resume a somewhat normal life as this process could take weeks or months or Right, years. and even if you're acquitted, the bondsman doesn't give that 10% back. That money that's is, the fee. That money no, is that's spent. The, that's fee. just going them to pay the other 90. 90. Yeah, 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 so. That's right. So since we're talking about that subject, that's a valuable, incredibly valuable benefit that is often understated because people don't really know what the context is or why that's important. But that could be as much money as the whole case. Well, since you're talking about that, we should point out what actually happened to John. So he's sitting here with no job, having to pay two or three thousand dollars a month toward the forty-five, which again was only ten percent of the actual bond, and which is an extraordinary deal that he has payment plans at all. Yeah, that's that's unusual, and he couldn't afford it. So what ends up happening? He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't skip out on court. But about a year and a half into this case, he just couldn't afford to make the payments. And the bail bondsman, looking, staring down the barrel of $450,000 that he'd be on the hook for if, you know, something goes wrong, said, I'm sorry, John, but I'm going to take you what's called off bond because you haven't been making your payments because you can't afford it. So John had to go back to jail, even though he had a bond in his case, because he simply couldn't even afford the payments on it Mm -hmm. because of the reality he was facing, uh, both mentally, right, and just physically unable to to maintain employment uh, and so he did and that's why john of the four years that this case took spent three of them ish in jail because the last you know two and a half there he was off bond and, and i'll point out being housed in a different county that was smart than the one where the incident took place. We touched on earlier that the sheriff runs the jail in Brevard County, which involved the shooting of a Brevard County deputy sheriff and all of that stuff. So within the same judicial circuit where we are uh, includes the neighboring county of Seminole County, and that's where John, uh, like you said, it was a smart thing. It was better for everyone, including the, the sheriff, for him to be in a different county where he didn't have to interact daily with people in sure. the same department, basically. And- and not only is it, uh, you don't want to be in jail. Jail is a shitty place to live, right? But uh, from a defense attorney's point of view, Don, tell me a little bit about how much more difficult it is to defend a client who's living in jail as opposed to someone who's out on bond. Well, communication is restricted to the occasional phone call, which we think is not being listened to. By the prosecutor, uh, anyway. It's yeah. probably being recorded. depends on the, the system. It's probably being recorded but not being released. Uh, so even if that system works perfectly, there's still a limit to those kinds of that kind of access. To see in person, you got to go there and sit uh, in a room and talk. Uh, you have to take any material with you, whether it's records or documents. It's hard sometimes to get a computer in. And the sorts of things, in this case, hundreds thousands of documents, hour upon hour upon hour of recordings, stuff that would be almost impossible for the client to review with you. 
And yet, at the same time, it's extremely difficult to leave that kind of stuff yeah. because even the stuff you can leave, you don't want them to have in the cell right. or the cell block. Well, I, I spent an evening in a uh, in a visitation cell with Ammon Bundy, and no one was allowed to have a pen. We had to use jelly pens. So you have, you have his lawyer with a jelly pen making notes because you weren't allowed to have a real pen in the... <laughs> yeah, and Don, I want you to talk about what you're saying, but you touched on something really interesting. This whole thing happened in a minute. And you just said thousands and thousands of pages and hours and hours of recordings for an incident that took place in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that mm-hmm. something? And a minute's long. Most of these self-defense incidents are, are, are opened and closed inside of seconds. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, it was long, and, and, and it was because of the, you know... Extraordinary. Well, just because there's, it was a gun shootout. Um, but I'm, I'm calling it a minute from, from even on the outside, the time that the guy walked up to the house and the, the time the it was over. To... Still relatively short period of time. But it, I just think it's... A lot of people don't realize how much is involved. It's like, oh, I, the, I was acting in self-defense. The guy was attacking me, and I shot him, and we're done, right? Anyway, thousands and thousands of pages and hours and hours of audio and interviews and everything else later, we're sitting here having a conversation. No, we spent a whole we spent a whole day and and the the stand your ground the, the self defense community hearing them just unwrapping each bullet casing of the forty bullet casings that they were going to put into evidence. They had the they had the the whole afternoon of just showing shell casings to an expert. Yeah, so, yep, that's we can it. talk more about that. But there are over a hundred pieces of evidence in in that hearing. Mike, let me just expand briefly on a couple of things we touched on. Um, it's also, I think, to the lawyer's disadvantage, to the client's disadvantage, to the case's disadvantage when someone's in jail because you don't have the ability to go with them to the scene. You can't go with them and talk to people. They Everything is communicated to them remotely in some way. You, use the, you lose the benefit of that interaction, the personal interaction that you have when they're not, when they're out on bond and able to truly assist. Yeah. Can't really help as much. Now, my role was much more restricted than we've let on at this point. I agreed to help Mike to be available, to consult, to review stuff, but I didn't sign on as counsel of record until later in the case for various reasons we can talk about or not. So right from the beginning, Mike did all the heavy lifting. He was the guy going to court. He was the guy reviewing discovery. He was the guy who was um, coordinating the investigation, conducting the depositions, and and dealing primarily with the client. So that was an enormous undertaking. And I was sort of in the background helping, but it wasn't until we got a lot closer to some real meaningful hearings and stuff that I uh, became sort of a, a, a co-counsel. There's one thing you said that I want to mention real quick, though, too. You, you mentioned depositions. You know, Mike, you said you took at least 20 depositions yeah. in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, a criminal defense lawyer being able to depose witnesses and in a case is a luxury that's pretty unique to Florida. A lot of criminal defense attorneys in other states across the country do not have that luxury. And the first time they might be speaking to an adverse witness will be on the stand in the context of a hearing or a trial. Yeah, I think the depositions actually helped us win this case. I think that's why we were able to, and we haven't even talked about this yet, but ultimately this case was won in in an immunity hearing posture where... It was not basically that's 
we call it stand your ground, although I don't like that term because I don't mm. think people understand truly what it means. But in the DeRosset case, we were able to do a pretrial immunity hearing. It basically gave him the opportunity to uh, show his self-defense claim to a judge. And in our case, the standard had changed twice. At first, it was going to be our burden uh, to show that he acted in self-defense by, what was it, done? a preponderance of the evidence? That's right. And then while our case was pending, the law changed, which shifted the burden to the state to actually show that he did not act in self-defense by clear and convincing evidence, which is a really big deal, and we can talk about that if it makes sense. But the bottom line is we had an immunity hearing, and the judge messed up the standard. But it ultimately, she denied it, and I believe she shouldn't have, and now I'm in good company because so does the appellate court. <laughs> And uh, we ultimately appealed the thing uh, to the appellate court well before before even going to a jury trial. The reason I bring this up in the context of the depositions is because at the immunity hearing, by then, we already had everybody's recorded statements. I was able to talk to all of the officer, uh, the agents that were there, including the one who was almost fatally wounded, and everybody else. that was, I, When I say 20, I, I think it was actually, now that I think about it, closer to 30. I don't know. I was taking depositions for a year in mm -hmm. this case. And so when we went to the immunity hearing, we were armed with their prior statements, which were in some material respects different from what they said at the immunity hearing. I don't think they were trying to lie. They just said, it has been two years, you know, and we didn't know. Uh, I think because we had these records of what they had previously said in deposition and then their statements at the immunity hearing, that gave us a much better ability to go to the appellate court because... Really, appeals most of the time aren't oral. You're not taking testimony at the appellate level. You're pointing to things that already happened, and they're words on a page. So having the, the ability to take depositions, and even if you can't, if you're in a jurisdiction where you can't, shoot, man, having that pretrial immunity hearing, that, that's all recorded. That, I don't care where you are in, the, in this country. Most states have that as an opportunity in a self-defense case to claim. Okay, so, so let's hold on there. So, so more than half of the states in the country have some kind of quote-unquote stand-your-ground law. They're, they're different, and there's different levels of those. Florida is famous for being the first to have a stand-your-ground law, and ours is the most controversial because of some high-profile cases that we might remember that kind of tested the boundaries of that. It, it's, it's, they wrote the law, right? and, and what, they call it stand-your-ground. That's kind of a, a provocative term for it like in Oklahoma they call it the make my day law that's not necessarily right what it means is that in traditional self-defense it's generally understood that as a defender that you have a obligation to try to retreat before using deadly force to meet the threat of deadly force or great bodily injury and that's the standard if you're going to defend yourself in self-defense, you have to show to a jury that there was some effort made to avoid it if there was an effort possible. And now with Stand Your Ground, the most important part of that is that they've removed that duty to retreat so that if you're threatened with deadly force or force enough to create great bodily injury, you can respond with deadly force without having made that effort to retreat first. Is that Yeah, I think that's a fair a fair overview, except it doesn't really relate to what we're talking about, which is why it's so confusing. And what I mean by that, Sean, is stand your ground eliminated the duty to retreat. Um, 
if you're in a place you're lawfully allowed to be. Yeah, all, all that you, kind of but, stuff. But it goes away. Right. I think you're about to say because of where John was. Well, no, I'm, what I'm talking about, though, is that, um, well, castle doctrine is another thing that's related that you really never have to retreat if you're in your you own house. You can't retreat further than your home. Yeah, but right. stand your ground only eliminates the duty to retreat. It extends it beyond the threshold of the house into, as you were saying, Mike, to any place that you're legally allowed to be. The confusion is that when Florida passed their bill creating Stand Your Ground, eliminating the duty to retreat, it included more stuff. It also included the right to a pretrial immunity hearing. And that's where you get to test the overall state's case by showing at that time, by a preponderance of the evidence that uh, you acted in self-defense, now the burden is my said has shifted now the state has to prove by clear and convincing that's not the issue of whether you had to retreat or not well and what happens is that there's all sorts of other codicils in the self-defense laws that could mean that you shouldn't be prosecuted and now that the duty to retreat is taken away and there's this mechanism this hearing which I think I think it's pretty much called a self-defense immunity hearing now, and I think we have a lot to do with that. I think that. we made that up. Yeah, because we didn't yeah. want it to be called a stand your ground hearing. But now, now basically, you're legally entitled to a hearing to see if you should be actually prosecuted. That's right. That's for right. self-defense, no matter whether it was the duty to retreat that was waived or some other uh, well, exception. Part of the part of the bill's name was stand your ground. So it became known as the stand your ground bill, which then got sort of pushed onto everything that was related to the statutory scheme. So what should have been called self-defense immunity, which is that pretrial hearing, mm -hmm. where you now have the right for the pretrial determination of self-defense, which is designed to let the judge dismiss or deny your claim before you have to face a jury trial on yeah. self-defense. Yep. Um, it, it gets confusing. If you just think about stand your ground as not having to retreat and self-defense immunity is that getting to test the prosecution pre-trial, um, th then it'll be clear. The thing, though, what we went through was every bit as grueling and as demanding as a full-blown criminal jury trial except for the jury. As I said, we had over 100 pieces of evidence. How many okay. people testified? 20? 20. I, I think there were 20 witnesses. Uh, it lasted for five full days. Five full court days. You've tried Which is any, pretty long You can try trial. any murder case in, in a week in Florida because you're going to pick a jury quickly. You've got discovery depositions, and you're off to the races. I, I've done some that were a day. Yeah. You know, yeah. Not shocking case. to me. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people always think about O.J. Simpson when they think about a murder trial that because in L.A. they... They, they try cases, they hear witnesses for about four hours a day and all the hoopla around it. Uh, you know, when we did Zimmerman, that judge made us work like we were taking testimony for eight hours of eight hours and you'd come in early and work, stay late. And that jury was sequestered and we just were going to get that case yeah, done. Once quick. the trial starts, it moves along. And that was long. And we but... had hearings going on during the trial sure. that were after hours. <laughs> But a lot, a lot right. of a lot of murder cases are going to be two, three days. Yeah, but yeah. but you know something that I think is important since you out out you know sort of laid out what the standard ground law right is, it didn't just remove the duty to retreat when you were in a place you were lawfully allowed to be, thereby extension giving the castle doctrine uh, powers to an individual who is acting in lawful self defense even on the street. That's effectively what it did. It opened the door to a house 
that in you know, the power that a house gives to you out there. If you're not, but here's the couple nuances that Florida at least has, and that played in Drossett's case. Mm-hmm. So long as a couple other things, and this is why I say I just don't like the term standard round. Right. By the way, yep, so long as uh, you weren't the initial aggressor, mm, we might have problems that way. So long as you weren't engaged in, you know, criminal activity when you were using deadly force or or even non-deadly force. You mean crim- like if you're if you're running a whorehouse? Exactly right. That's ex- that is a real problem. In criminal activity of any sort, really. Any sort. It doesn't have to be related to the self-defense incidents. Committing mail fraud from your house. <laughs> oh, I've made a lot of arguments about how this could have gone on a different direction at the appellate level if there were facts that showed that John was using his house for criminal activity, which is exactly what the state argued he was doing. Me- which meaning that if he was intentionally prostituting out his niece to pay to generate money from his house. Yeah, that he that, wouldn't have been entitled to immunity. And there's no doubt in my mind that would have worked. Yeah, that would have worked. Yeah, if they could have made that case. If that they, wasn't true, but if they could have made that case, John would have had no chance for self-defense immunity. There's, sure. a, there's a third mm-hmm. one. There's a third caveat where you just don't get stand your ground, whatever that means. And I know what it means, but you know, it, what the, the third ground is, you can't be shooting at cops. It's crazy. We, we defined this in mm-hmm. this case. We yeah. were we were uh, around a table outside of Graffiti Junction uh, in the weeks leading up to the self defense immunity hearing, and the uh, wizened Don West, uh, with all of us, poses the question: What, like, what's the theme of the case? What's the most important? thing that we need to articulate. Do you remember what that was, Don? He didn't know there were cops. Well, I'm wizened because I'm old, which means I still, uh, my mind isn't as sharp as it once was, but it still seems to me that the critical focus of this case was and had to have been consistent throughout was that John did not know the people he was shooting at were police officers. And that's the truth. It is the I'm truth. I'm 100% certain. It is the truth. Mm-hmm. Everything else goes out from there. But it's yeah. so critical because this is why I said whatever stand your ground means. Stand your ground means a couple things. One, in Florida, it gives you the opportunity to have a pretrial immunity hearing. That has nothing to do with standing anyone's ground. It just gives you the opportunity if you're acting in lawful self-defense and you're not disqualified for some other reason. Yeah. And it also does get rid of the duty to retreat if you're in a lawful place you're legally allowed to be. Now, with that said, what about these exceptions? Well, two of the exceptions arguably applied to John. One is, in fact, he did shoot at police. He didn't know it, but he did. And two, was he using the home to engage in criminal activity? Those are two exceptions, meaning while you still might be able to claim self-defense, you don't get an immunity here. Well, even, right. even if those things were true, he could go to trial and argue self-defense in front of a jury, and a jury could acquit him if yeah. they felt he was... But but you cannot get the pretrial relief not, of, not, uh, of the immunity hearing. Not only that, Sean, you don't get the pretrial relief of an immunity hearing, and dare I say, you don't get to stand your ground either. That is what people miss every single time. When they're like, well, I was just standing my ground. Were you? Because if any of these little nuanced exceptions apply to your case... You're not allowed to stand your ground, brud. You just can't. Mm-hmm. Guess what? It reverts to. It reverts to old school common law self-defense. Don, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but it does. And you also can't be the initial aggressor in a lot of cases and claim that you were standing your ground. Well, that's a legal battle we never had to fight, fortunately, the way the case ultimately played out. I would have argued until my nose bled that because he was at his home, 
you, that, that he always had the right to invoke the castle doctrine. He had the presumption, according to the statute. I agree with that. But, but we didn't have to fight that. You, right, you, so. You'd have argued until a uh, bailiff thought he might have to uh, take you yeah, into custody. Well, you know, Don, Don almost got, Don almost got held in contempt. Don almost got held in contempt. I'd like to point out, I was watching on YouTube the other day because I was watching one of his uh, YouTube videos. I want to say for CCW Safe. This is after I told you this. I was watching it like two nights ago. And the one thing pulled up, and it was Don West goes to battle with... Uh, Nelson. Um, D- Judge Nelson. And, and it was this YouTube video of you just standing there when the, she was questioning George on whether he was going to testify. And you were really upset about it. And you were right because it was too early for that to put him on the spot to answer that question. And she was like, I'm not talking to you. And I swear, Don, you just, and you were pretty respectful about it. But it's kind of a funny video in hindsight because you didn't get arrested. But, it, you know, in this case, that almost <laughs> happened to you as well. I mean, the judge was saying something, you're just like, I'm, for the record, I'm just going to sit here. And she actually told you to sit down. Well, I, I, I was always respectful of the position. And I try to be respectful of the person, no matter how I might feel at the time. I, um, however, believe that you are the guy there that has to stand between whatever's happening in front of you and your client. So if the judge is out of line, you need to be respectful, but you need to make your record. If the prosecutor is being uh, disingenuous, you have to point that out. You have to be willing to stand there and uh, take the bullet, which means that you follow the rules, you're professional, you're ethical, but you don't go along to get along. And and, um, that's the role, I think, that a any lawyer, but especially a criminal defense lawyer, plays when their client has been singled out in a case like this. Well, it also taught me that you have to make the record, and 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 that was a big deal because after that one, there was a very tense moment in this in the uh, Durasset case, and it, we were in the hallway, and you pulled me aside and you said, "Do you know why I did that? Do you remember that? I do, I do now." And 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 it was it was a learning moment, and I think you just. You didn't have to have that conversation with me, but I think you really cared to teach me something. And you knew that I thought, man, that was kind of a tense thing that just happened. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that was good or bad for us. And I think you knew that. Mm-hmm. And so you said you said that. And, and part of it, part of your explanation was what you just said. But I think the bigger part at that time was, if we don't lay this record, then it's gone. Then it's lost. And I believe that the judge was doing this wrong and she was refusing to give her explanation for why she was ruling the way she was. So we needed to put it on the record so we could preserve it for appellate purposes. Ultimately, we did. That's how we ended up, well, end up well, winning the case. And I, and I want to mention two things here for the audience that's listening to us that aren't lawyers, right? But like, sometimes people think that when you appeal a case, you can just say, I don't like the results. I want to retry it in a different court. And that's not the case. The appellate court, if you have a claim that there was some irregularity or that the judge made a decision that violated your rights, that on that issue alone, you can appeal it. And if that issue is found to have been significant enough where it could have affected the result of the adjudicative hearing or trial, then you can go back for another bite at it, right? Essentially. Mm -hmm. And and so, so yeah, so by standing on the point and making sure it's on the record, that gives you the transcript that you're going to need to show to the appellate court later that you have that. If the judge is wrong, you got to say it's wrong in court on the record so you can go to the appellate court and say, there it was. But the, the second point I wanted to make here was we came back from lunch recess 
the judge was like, you know what, you're right. I'm going to let that, <laughs> that yeah, piece she, of evidence she in. And, and she, she did let it in after after Dawn had made a really big deal about it. Because she knew she'd be overruled on appeal if we appealed it. Yeah, she didn't well, wanna... But because she had to make a ruling on the record that Dawn made her do. But, you know, the other thing is, if you don't preserve an objection, a general rule in appellate law is if you don't preserve an objection, it's waived for purposes of appeal, That's even right. if a judge is dead wrong um, on whatever their call was. If you don't object, or, or in, in some circumstances you have to move for a mistrial there's all kinds of things you have to do and then renew an objection if you don't it's it's presumed waived because the rationale is well that was a trial strategy that you were making you know we're just assuming that everyone's a great lawyer and that they would make every proper objection if they felt like they needed to and we don't have time at the appellate level to just deal with things that weren't preserved so i'd like to just point out to our listeners as well that um this is the kind of stuff that happens in every case. It happens more, perhaps, in the more contested ones or where the stakes are higher. But these issues are, are constant throughout the case from the beginning to the end, where you're making those kinds of decisions, strategy decisions, deciding whether to object, not to object, whether to ask the court to be more specific, to state the reasons, because without the stated reasons, sometimes that will affect your ability to seek further review, all at the same time trying to win the case in front of the jury. All right, everybody, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. Uh, next time will be our third and final installment of the legal defense of John DeRossett, and we're going to be getting into the nitty-gritty of the self-defense immunity hearing and the uh, appellate fight to earn John DeRossett his freedom. As a side note, somewhere along the line in this podcast, I mentioned the guitarist and the wrecking crew. His name is actually Tommy Tedesco. A little fact check there for you. All right, thanks for listening in. We'll be back with the final podcast in this series next week. Until then, be smart, stay safe, and take care.